0: Welcome back to the Stanford Psychology Podcast, where leading psychologists come to share their most recent work. My name is Kate, and for this week's episode, I had the pleasure of chatting with Dr. Claudia Haas. Claudia is an Associate Professor of Human Development and Social Policy at Northwestern University, where she directs the Lifespan Development Lab. Claudia's research examines pathways towards happy and healthy development across the lifespan. In today's episode, Claudia shared insights from several studies examining how romantic couples navigate the emotional ups and downs of their relationships. And I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I did. Hi, Claudia. Thank you for joining me on the Stanford Psychology Podcast.
1: It's really an honor and a delight to be here. Thanks for having me on.
0: So I really enjoyed reading this book chapter that you co-authored with two of your graduate students, Jacqueline Stevens and Emily Hitner. And this chapter is titled Emotion Regulation in Couples Across the Lifespan. And it is going to appear in the Oxford Handbook of Emotional Development. So this chapter touches on so many important topics and covers so much interesting research. Um, And of course, you yourself have been doing this research for many years now. So I really just can't wait to dive into some of the science here. But before we do that, I wonder if it's worth unpacking the title just a little bit. Right, So emotion regulation is basically this fancy umbrella term that affective scientists use to describe all kinds of things that people do to change the intensity, duration, or type of uh, emotions they're having. And it's typical, as you also note in the chapter, to think about emotion regulation as something that happens at the level of a single person. But here is this research on emotion regulation in couples. So would you like to just say a little bit about what that means, what it looks like, and anything else you may like to share to set the stage for our discussion today?
1: Yeah, I love this this question. I think when we think of emotion regulation and the situations in which we Really want to feel less angry, you know, or calmer, or more joy. Um, this often occurs with real or imagined others, you know. I think, as you just said, but most of the studies on emotion regulations have been conducted with individuals, and they are amazing and important. We learn so much from them, but there's really a whole set of challenges and complexity that gets introduced when we look at emotion regulation in a, in any social interaction. And there are so many other social contexts where I'm hoping some of your listeners might now be inspired and go look at emotion regulation in friendships, or there's also great work on, work on emotion regulation <clears throat> in parents and children. But we are really interested in emotion regulation in romantic couples. and And I think one of the reasons is that Many of us, I would say most of us, will have been, have been, or currently are part of a romantic couple. And we have had many of our highest highs and probably also some of our lowest lows together with these people who we, you know, hopefully love really very much. And I think that just illustrates the power of, you know, emotion generation and the nuances complexity and challenges of emotion regulation when things go well um we can experience just an enormous joy but when things go poorly in a relationship it can really derail us and you know make us feel bad for the rest of our day and maybe maybe even a couple of days after a fight
0: yeah you know so what's so interesting based on uh the way you're talking about it and based on the other things that we already know about emotion regulation, is that in a way, the more I think about it, the harder it becomes to draw a super clear line between individual emotion regulation and interpersonal emotion regulation. So, for example, um, since we know that my emotions have such a strong influence on my partner's emotions then as I regulate my own emotions, I may also be inadvertently regulating my partner's emotions, even though uh, it may not be my goal, right? At least not, not directly. So, And then this cycle just keeps going. So my question to you is, how can we draw this line between individual and interpersonal emotion regulation? And actually, perhaps the question should really be can we even draw that line? Or do you think it's impossible to study one without also studying the other?
1: Yes, I think you put your finger on a really critical point. And when we look at emotion regulation in couples in adulthood and adulthood and ask, well, where do these patterns and strategies we employ and in these interactions come from, um, we cannot help but really look at early attachment between infant and caregivers and um, there's some amazing work tracing early attachment to later emotion regulation in adult romantic relationships and one insight from these studies on early attachment is that emotion regulation for infants really means that the caregiver regulates their emotions this is really how it starts you know with a caregiver touching um the baby you know nursing and rocking and cradling and cuddling and petting and tickling there's also all sorts of emotional regulation through voice through laughter or singing or facial expressions you smile at them you raise your eyebrows and so i would i would you know make Make an argument that the origins of emotion regulation are actually deeply interpersonal. And we learn to regulate emotions by being in an interaction and embedded in the emotion regulation of our caregivers. And then slowly, and I have two small kids myself, so I'm part of this journey, and slowly we learn to uh, take on some of this ourselves. Um, and I think that the line is blurry. It's blurry between emotion generation and emotion regulation. And it's also, I think, really blurry between individual and interpersonal emotion regulation. And most recently, we've really looked at not just interpersonal emotion regulation as the sum of two individuals regulating their own or each other's emotion, but as the emerging quality of something that people might call synchrony or linkage or Resonance in an interaction—it's really more than the sum of its parts. It's two people being on the same wavelength, and there—you know—there's science that can be done to actually quantify these processes too.
0: Yeah. So that's actually my next question: is how do you quantify something as complex as interpersonal emotion regulation? Because presumably you can't just Follow people around all day long and record everything that they're doing and how they're regulating, right? And um, and I should say, even if you could do that, I'm just not sure um, you'd get very useful information out of it, right? Because it's just like the sheer amount of information you get would be so overwhelming. Um, it's not clear how to even begin to make heads or tails of all that data. So yeah, how do you take something? so complex. How do you take all of this complexity into the lab in order to be able to study it scientifically?
1: Absolutely. And I think I can walk you through what a typical couple study would look like in our lab. You would come in with a romantic partner. We're very interested in married couples. So many of our couples are married. And then we ask you to both think about topics you really disagree with in your relationship. And um, I'm sure things come to mind and um, we attach physiological sensors to measure how fast people's hearts are beating, how much they are sweating and what their breathing looks like. And we also have partially hidden video cameras to record people's facial expressions and also a little bit of their body. So we can later analyze those emotional behaviors and then we also have a series of you know, ways to figure out what are people consciously experiencing through emotion checklists, and we also have waiting dials. And then there's all sorts of other things that you could do. You could analyze the voice, just prosody in the voice. And um, something that we have begun doing is looking at language, the kinds of words couples use, as they now, after having generated their you know, topics of disagreement, as we now tell them, you know, you both seem to really disagree both on you know let's say money or children or communication and we would like for you to uh, talk about um talk about this topic for the next 15 minutes and ideally come to a solution here and um yeah and then people navigate this prompt in so many different ways and the individual differences that emerge in terms of physiology in terms of emotional behavior and in terms of subjective experience they turn out to be really powerful and informative about how is the relationship going as a whole um but also you know what is what are people's physical health look like how healthy are they how physically are mentally healthy and um we are not only making people fight but you also ask them to talk about something they enjoy doing together. So that would be a conversation about well, think about you know something that really brings you to joy that is just so exciting when you do it. And they do the same thing and generate a list of topics and then talk about those. And um, it gives us then a way to actually quantify emotion regulation by, for instance, this is one method we use, um, look at moments where negative emotions are really high. On any of those channels, and then count how long does it take for people to return to a baseline. And so we're quantifying emotion regulation there just by looking at well, how long does it take people to get out of these really hot button toxic zones and return to a calmer state. And that's just one way, not many, many others. But I hope that gives you a, a flavor of how we're going about measuring emotion regulation. Thank you so much
0: for walking us through this incredible
1: paradigm.
0: I mean, it's just, I I remember the first time I heard about this approach, I was just blown away by, first of all, by how creative it is and innovative, right? But also by just the sheer amount of work that goes into collecting data from just a single couple, right? I mean, it's, it's really extraordinary what you do something that i'm wondering about and that i imagine at least some of our listeners might be wondering about is how much do you think a uh an interaction that a couple has in the lab actually resembles a typical interaction that that same couple um might have outside of the lab right because Hear these people who are coming into your lab and they're hooked up to a heart monitor and you're asking them to reflect and report how they're feeling and their people observing their interaction. Right. So it's, it's quite an unusual environment. And so, yeah, I'm just really, uh, I, I would really love to hear more about how it maps onto, um, the real uh, life outside of the lab.
1: Yes. You know, the paradigm that I just described to you, that's a paradigm that was developed by eminent scholars in the field, John Gottman, and then, you know, Bob Levinson did this work. And I remember when I originally heard about this work, I was similarly skeptical and I thought, you know, do these couples really have, you know, a real interaction in the lab. And and then um, what immediately changed my mind was just visiting Bob Levinson's lab and actually seeing one of these couples. And I remember just being so blown away at any doubt I had about the validity of the procedure was really blown away. And I think that it helps if you consider, you know, there are, there are some hot button issues that we... Uh, just cannot help but feel pretty strongly about, or many of us do at least. And we uh, find that couples, you know, I think when we ask them, and we've done that, for instance, you know, how typical is the conversation that you just had to conversations that you also have in real life? And the couples would say that, yeah, it's very, they're very typical, they're very representative. So they themselves perceive them to be uh, mirroring something that's actually real. But of course, Um, many couples might actually not be in an environment where they, for instance, sit down facing each other. Some of us have, you know, like our best conversations in a car or in some other venue. And so the next step, and there is a group in Germany and I'm sure other people who are working on this is really linking emotion regulation in couples in the lab to emotion regulation in couples in the field. And I think that's probably... Um, a bigger question for the emotion regulation field as a whole, you know, how do the things that we see people do in the lab and what they are able to do, how do these link up with what people are actually doing and practicing in their daily lives? And I'm very curious. I think that the fact that we can predict outcomes based on these couples interactions in the lab that tells me there's really something there and we're picking up on important information But I'd be so curious to actually take a much closer look at emotion regulation in couples as they go about their day using experience sampling methods, for instance.
0: So now that we've spent some time talking about the basics of emotion regulation and emotion regulation in interpersonal contexts, as well as understanding um, some of the methods that you use in your research, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about some of the key findings from your work in this area.
1: So I think the very early days of this kind of work um, in the 80s and 90s were dominated, um, I think, by a view that how could you possibly learn anything from a 10 or 15-minute lab-based interaction? And there was, I think, a lot of skepticism surrounding, on the one hand, um, the, you know, kind of like valid, the the importance of stable individual differences, and then also the validity of these relatively thin slices of behavior. And so this very early work then actually documented that, yes, we can learn a lot of things about a couple from studying these interactions. And um, the first outcome that people were interested in was marital or relationship satisfaction, obviously. And so we now, you know, have since, you know, in those early days, just a massive amount of research showing that there are certain negative emotional behaviors and certain positive emotional behaviors that are really key to understanding what makes for a happy marriage and also what do the disasters look like. And um, the next question then also was, you know, can you actually predict divorce for instance based on these interactions and you know I think there are some exciting studies that show yes there is actually um, these emotional behaviors are really you know one factor among many others of course to understanding divorce risk Um, and the more recent studies I think have really branched out and so to link emotional behaviors and these interactions to all sorts of physical health processes, biomarkers, and um, there's an, a, just an amazing array of studies looking at physical health outcomes. And I think people are also becoming very, very interested in how emotion regulation in couples links with mental health. And for the future, what I think would be just super interesting to study is outcomes in the realm of cognitive functioning. I think in the beginning, I alluded to when you, let's say you had a you know pretty bad argument with your partner in the morning, and then you find yourself just so preoccupied with it for the rest of the day. Um, I cannot help but wonder whether it also might have something to do with cognitive functioning, but we don't know. And so that's what I enjoy about this work too is that you can ask so many questions and some of them have been investigated but there's so many open questions that are just waiting for people to look at
0: yeah definitely and you know something that came to mind as you were talking just now is this question about how much is it that the quality of emotion regulation is shaping some of the outcomes that you've mentioned as opposed to the other way around, right? Because you could imagine that partners who are more satisfied with their relationship um, might actually have an easier time regulating negative emotions when they arise. And they might have an easier time helping their partners cope with, uh, emotional challenges. Right. Um, and, you know, couples that are, who are more satisfied, um, with their relationship might actually experience fewer challenges. And so there's less of a need to regulate negative emotions in the first place, or, um, maybe at least the nature of those challenges might be quite different than, um, some of the challenges that less satisfied couples face. So it gets really complicated here, and of course, the, the the establishing the direction of influence in this kind of work is really really hard. So I was wondering if you had any thoughts on this, and um, uh, if you could say a little bit about how you address this issue in your own work.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the in the power of these longitudinal studies is that. At the cross sectional level, we really aren't able to determine which leads to which emotion regulation, marital satisfaction, or the other way around. But when we look longitudinally, we control for initial levels of marital satisfaction. So we're really asking this question over and, and above how people are already doing in terms of marital satisfaction what does emotion regulation then predict in terms of changes in marital satisfaction? And um, of course, If you were someone who would demand a randomized trial, you would not be convinced by that evidence. And you would still say, well, it's just correlational. And it's absolutely true. And I think that the best studies that then look at emotion regulation as a manipulated variable come from the couples therapy literature and um, i think in those studies you actually do see evidence that on the one hand yes couples therapy and there are specific forms especially emotion focused couples therapy that i think um really hold a lot of promise in terms of improving relationship outcomes and there's at least one study that i'm thinking of that shows that changes in emotion regulation are really the one of the active ingredients and one of the mediators in um bringing about these these long-term effects on marital satisfaction.
0: I now want to ask you a little bit more about this incredible longitudinal study that you mentioned that followed the same couples over several decades. Um, And so I wonder if you could go into a little bit more detail about those long-term effects on marital satisfaction that you found.
1: Yes. And I think I was super lucky to be able to work with this 20-year longitudinal study. It's actually now a 30-year longitudinal study, and we have some recent data on longevity, and I can tell you more about that in a second, but this study tracks people's marital satisfaction over, you know, decades. And um, we find, for instance, that when spouses are able to downregulate negative emotions in these interactions after a hotspot negative emotion events in the conversation, in terms of physiology, they return to, you know, baseline physiological arousal faster and their emotional behaviors on their face also, you know, kind of like negative emotional behaviors disappear more quickly. And people also report feeling better and they escape or get out of these zones of negativity more quickly. And people who can do that, spouses who can do that, have higher marital satisfaction cross-sectionally. And then when we look longitudinally, it turns out, and that's also really interesting, we can get more into these gender differences, that when you check marital satisfaction patterns longitudinally, it's particularly um, the wife's ability to downregulate their negative emotions that emerges then as a key predictor of better marital satisfaction trajectories over and above initial marital satisfaction and a host of co- other vari- a host of co- a host of co- other covariates. Co- 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 co-
0: co- yeah! Wow, there are just so many questions that I want to ask you based on everything that you just said um but actually that last bit in particular that you just mentioned about gender differences is something that I'm really curious about now um so could you say just a little more about that finding
1: yes and as you can imagine we've received a lot of questions about this finding and some people are very interested and other people get really annoyed and you know, why do you always look for the women? And I think that what we believe what's going on is that in these couples, and don't forget, since this is a longitudinal study, we're looking here at couples in the 1990s. Um, they are in marriages that are maybe dominated by a view that emo- that women are really the emotional centers of a marriage. So they are the ones who are responsible for you know, keeping things calm, and so when you then look at how the marriage is doing as a whole, you look at you look at look at what these women are doing, and that's just one speculation that we have. You know, it's really possible. Um, that if you look at same-sex couples, you would find a very different um, pattern of findings and maybe even contemporary couples. I think that um, I really want to shy away from the notion that these gender differences are essentialist, which is built into our biology. I don't think there's a lot of evidence to support that view. I think it has more to do with how we think about and what we believe about what men and women are supposed to do in a marriage.
0: Yeah, and you know, I would be really curious to see what the results of some of this research look like in non-heterosexual couples or even just younger couples, right, as the gender roles and norms change in our society. I think that's a really important and interesting direction for future work in this area, and I certainly hope that we'll see some data Um on these questions sooner rather than later
1: but let me just emphasize the point you just made about studying same-sex couples younger couples i i hope that um your listeners the maybe feel inspired by our conversation to say you know i actually want to go out and do this work because it's so needed we know you know not nearly enough and we have really Um, So much to learn about couples from all walks of life, including same-sex marriages, same-sex couples, different racial and ethnic backgrounds, different religious orientations, different cultures. And um, there is so much work to do, and I really hope that people do it. Yeah, definitely.
0: There are just so many important questions and so many important ways in which this um, research can be extended in the future. So... One other area that um, you haven't mentioned, but that is interesting, is sort of looking at couples' emotion regulation through a developmental lens, right? So even the title of the chapter that you wrote uh, is emotion regulation in couples across the lifespan, right? And of course, we already touched a little bit on the early development of emotion regulation in children as they interact with their primary caregivers and other figures in their lives. But there is also something interesting and important to be said about emotion regulation as it changes uh, across the adult lifespan, right? Because Couples grow older and the relationship changes and the nature of the challenges that people and couples face also changes. Um, It is only natural to assume that the ways in which people approach their own and their partner's emotions must also change and adapt, right? So do you have any thoughts on this?
1: Okay, you just have the best questions. One area that has received some attention is to look at couples from different you know different age groups and to compare them cross-sectionally which is one approach but ideally of course you would want to follow them up longitudinally and really learn something about what happens to the same couple as they grow older and I'm a lifespan developmental psychologist by training. And something that always makes me so happy when I look at this work is that we typically think of aging and getting older as decline and loss. And it's really true that there are a couple of challenges and losses that come with age, but emotion regulation, and especially in the personal functioning is an area that is spared from decline on many, in many in many, ways, although not all of them are spared. But overall, a pretty positive picture emerges. And there are actually aspects of emotional functioning that increase with age. And based on some of our own work, we have found that well, couples, for instance, they become less negative in how they interact with each other. They um, show less belligerence. They become less and fearful but instead you start seeing these increases in humor and people actually start making jokes about things they disagree about you know it's kind of like um very sweet to observe um and people also show more validation behavior and kind of like really start signaling more to each other you know i, I get it i get where you're coming from and um that just fills me, fills me with hope and excitement, you know, also for my, for my own aging. And I think it's a pretty, uh, it's a pretty encouraging story that our picture that emerges from this line of work.
0: Mm, that is so
1: interesting.
0: And it really paints such a
1: vivid picture.
0: You know, something that I'm wondering about as I'm listening to you talk about these older couples and the the positive shift in their emotions and emotion regulation um, which is also something I imagine at least some of our listeners must be wondering about at this point, is if there is something that we could learn from these older couples to become better at regulating our own emotions and also help, helping our loved ones navigate uh, their emotions. Do you have any words of wisdom based on your work and others' work in this area?
1: I, I think that one idea, this is based on Laura Carstenson's work, who you know, is at Stanford and uh, you know pioneered this work on highlighting that one of the key things that happens as people age is that they become aware that their time on this earth is limited. And why, spend our times fighting and arguing and trying to really change our partner into someone who they will never be. Um I think this realization, which which I think there's a lot of convincing evidence that this shrinking time horizon actually drives some of these observed age differences, um, that hasn't been applied to look at whether couples actually can improve their interpersonal emotion regulation. At least, not that I know of. But there are these single subjects experiments that you, that, that show that actually, you know, becoming aware that time is limited and precious can help people. You know, shift their mindset to become more positive and forgiving, and and that's so. That's one. That's one idea. And I again, you know, want to just flag this needs empirical support, but I think it's well founded and, and grounded in the literature. And the second idea that um, I'm currently mulling over is based on work that Alison Troy and um, Iris Mouse and others have done on emotional acceptance in individuals. Um, I have really started to wonder, and this is together with Leon Block, my favorite, you know, like one of my favorite collaborators and fans and Sarah Holly, and both of them are amazing. We've really started wondering about emotional acceptance as an emotion regulation strategy that might be particularly promising for couples to engage in. And it's this notion of not judging what you and your partner um, or feeling, not activating these metacognitions about I should not be mad or also they should not be mad, but instead um, accepting that the emotional reality right now is that this is a hard moment for us and we are really, I'm really struggling and you are too. And instead of fighting then about this struggle, accepting it and seeing if that allows people to move faster through these negative emotional episodes. And this hasn't been tested in couples, but we know from the individual subjects literature that emotional acceptance actually helps people move through negative emotions faster. And it's also a strategy that our older adults in single subject studies are very well able to do. And they actually embrace that and find themselves strong and motivated towards Implementing acceptance. And I think there is something about emotional acceptance, maybe particularly attractive in situations where there might not be so much for you to actually do in terms of changing the situation and talk about, you know, the many things that we might want to change about our partners and how limited our control is about any of this. And instead of wanting them to be someone who they're not, in accepting them and their emotions and our own for what for what they are. And um, I will, again, also flag this as an idea that I think is, I don't know, I, th- I think it's I'm, I'm intrigued, but, I, but we're just also waiting for empirical studies. And we might be wrong and might turn out to be something really different. But I, yeah, I would like to see people starting to, you know, ex- explore this question. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, that is so true. This is just such a highly complex set of topics, and we're still learning, right? We're in some ways we're just beginning to scratch the surface of all of this complexity. And so, with that in mind, and noticing also that we're about to start running out of time here, unfortunately, I just really want to ask you, what do you think are some of the biggest Questions and research on couples' emotion regulation as well as emotion regulation, uh, interpersonal emotion regulation more generally, that you think are going to be particularly important to focus on in the next couple of years or so? Ah, There's so much
1: to do. <laughs> there are only so many hours in the day. It's is- just Why I'm really hoping that there will be listeners inspired to pursue some of this work. And I also know, Kate, you also have an interest in interpersonal emotional regulation. So I also really hope that you end up um, inspired to pursue your own questions because there is a lot to explore. So some of the things that I think that are important, you've already highlighted. But I would also make a more general point. I think. Um, we often, and very understandably so, rely on self-report measures of emotional regulation. How good do I think I am at, you know, thinking differently about a situation? And though they are important, these beliefs really do matter. But I, I think that they do not always map very well onto what people are actually doing. And we all have our blind spots, not only for ourselves, but also our partners. So I actually really hope that people will engage in more, know performance-based measures of emotional regulation looking looking at what goes on in the body looking at what, what goes on on the face and um and then also looking at what goes on in people's subjective experience and triangulating those data and really diving into the richness and complexity of emotions as they manifest in these different response systems um so i think that's um, going to be a massive challenge but uh, um, I think really valuable task to take on for us as a field I then think um, there are so many other outcomes that I think would be uh, amazing to study beyond um, relationship satisfaction and divorce um, you know well being cognitive performance um, you know also uh, yeah you, you know the, the list goes on I also think that um Longitudinal studies are really hard to do, but they are so informative because they can also teach us something about the malleability or plasticity of emotional regulation across the lifespan. I think many of us wonder, you know, am I kind of like doomed to be like that? And we do know based on these aging studies that we have done that there is change happening. But I think we have much more opportunity to actually link early Let's say attachment or early friendships to later friendships and then later romantic relationships. And I think those kinds of studies tracking across different kinds of relationships to parse out stability and change would be enormously interesting. And then I think there's a real um yeah, there's a real opportunity to have much more crosstalk between effective science researchers and couples therapists and practitioners. And um, there's enormously important and amazing work on um, couples therapy. And I I think that this would just be an area where I have you know, so many questions and so many things that I think people could look at. And not only effective scientists and emotional regulation researchers, maybe informing couples therapy, but also the other way around, you know. Um, I always enjoy talking to friends who are therapists themselves and hearing what they have to, you know, the insights that they bring to the table. And it's inspired a lot of my own work too, and how I, how I think about emotion regulation in couples.
0: Wow. Those are some really exciting directions. I'm definitely feeling inspired by what you just said and i can't wait to see where this word goes in the next couple years but in the meantime claudia thank you so much again for joining me today
1: i really enjoyed our conversation i enjoyed it so much kate and i can't wait to see what you do next and um this is Um, as you said, I think an exciting field. There's so many open questions. And um, yeah, I'd be on the lookout for studies to come. And if people want to get in touch with me or with you, I would say, you know, um, we we would love to hear from people. Thank you so much for having me on.